that serves as a guide for the Cas9 enzyme. But it was not until the Doudna-Charpentier June 2012 paper that it was clear that tracer RNA has the more important role of being part of the binding mechanism that allows Cas9 to cut DNA in the targeted location. In his January 2012 grant application, Zhang did not describe the full role of the tracer RNA. Likewise, in his notebook pages and declaration describing the work he had done before June 2012, there is no evidence that he appreciated the role the tracer RNA plays in cleaving the targeted DNA. One of the relevant pages, Carroll says, includes a rather detailed recipe of the components included, and that list does not have anything that suggests that a tracer RNA was included. Zheng's lack of understanding of the role of the tracer RNA, Doudna and her supporters would later say, was the main reason that his experiments were not working well before June 2012. Zheng himself, in the paper that he and his colleagues eventually published in January 2013, seemed to acknowledge that a full understanding of the role of the tracer RNA did not come until he saw what Doudna and Charpentier had published. He noted that it had previously been shown that the tracer RNA was needed to cleave DNA, and he footnoted the Doudna-Charpentier paper at that point. The reason that Fung knew those two RNAs were required was based on reading our paper, Doudna says. If you look at Fung's 2013 article, we are cited, and we're cited for that reason. When I ask Zhang about this, he says that he included the footnote as a standard practice, because the Doudna-Charpentier paper was the first to publish on the full role of tracer RNA. But he and the Broad Institute say that he was already experimenting with systems that linked the tracer RNA to the CRISPR RNA. These are murky claims to sort out. For what it's worth, my own assessment is that Zhang was working on using CRISPR for human gene editing beginning in 2011, and by mid-2012, he was focusing on the Cas9 system and showing some success, but not a lot, in getting it to work. However, there is no clear evidence, and certainly no published evidence, that he had fully sorted out the precise components that were essential, or that he appreciated the ongoing role of the tracer RNA until after reading the Doudna-Charpentier paper of June 2012. Zhang was open about one thing he learned from the Doudna-Charpentier paper— the possibility of fusing the CRISPR RNA and the tracer RNA into a single guide RNA that could be programmed to target a desired DNA sequence. We adapted a chimeric CRISPR RNA tracer RNA hybrid design recently validated in vitro, he later wrote, with a footnote citing the Doudna Charpentier paper. Marafini, who was still working with Zhang in June 2012, agrees. Fung and I began using a single-guide RNA only after we saw Jennifer's paper. As Zhang points out, the creation of the single-guide was a useful but not totally essential invention. The CRISPR-Cas9 system can work with the tracer RNA and CRISPR RNA remaining separate rather than fused into a simpler molecule, as Doudna and Charpentier's team had done. The single-guide simplifies the system, and allows it to be delivered more easily into human cells. But it's not what enables the system to work. 
Chapter 25 Doudna Joins the Race We were not genome editors. It was surprising that Jennifer Doudna was even a contender in the race to make CRISPR-Cas9 work in humans. She had never experimented with human cells, nor had she ever engineered gene-editing tools such as Talon's. That was also true of her primary researcher, Martin Yenick. I had a lab full of biochemists and people doing crystallography and that sort of thing, she says. Whether it was creating cultured human cells or even those of nematode worms, that was not the kind of science my lab was expert in. So it was a testament to her willingness to take risks that she jumped into what she knew would be a crowded race to take their discoveries about CRISPR-Cas9 and turn it into a tool that would work in human cells. Doudna realized, correctly, that using CRISPR to edit human genes was the next breakthrough waiting to happen. She assumed that other researchers, including Eric Sondheimer and probably people at the Broad, were racing to do it, and she felt a competitive urgency. After our June paper, I knew we had to speed up, and it wasn't clear that our collaborators had the same commitment, she recalls. That was a frustration to me. I'm competitive. So she pushed Yenik to work more aggressively. You need to make this your absolute priority, she repeatedly told him. Because if Cas9 is a robust technology for human genome editing, then the world changes. Yenik worried that it would be difficult. We were not genome editors, unlike some of the labs that pioneered the method, he says. So we had to reinvent what others had already done. Alexandra East At first, Doudna later admitted, she suffered many frustrations in her quest to make CRISPR-Cas9 work in human cells. But as the fall semester of 2012 began, and Zheng was racing to finish his own experiments, she got a lucky break. A new graduate student named Alexandra East, who had experience working with human cells, joined the lab. What made her arrival especially interesting was where she came from. She had received her training and honed her gene-editing skills as a technician at the Broad Institute, working with Feng Zhang and others. East was able to grow the necessary human cells and then began testing ways to get Cas9 into the nucleus. When she started getting the data from her experiments, she was not sure that they showed evidence of gene editing. Sometimes biology experiments do not have clear results. But Doudna, who had a far better eye for assessing results, saw the experiments as successful. When she showed me the data, it was immediately clear to me that she had beautiful evidence of genome editing by Cas9 in the human cells, Doudna says. This is a classic difference between a student who is in training and someone like me who's been doing this for a while. I knew what I was looking for, and when I saw the data she had, it just clicked and I thought, yes, she's got it. Whereas she was unsure and thought she might have to do the experiments again, I was saying, oh my gosh, this is huge, this is so exciting. To Doudna, this was evidence that getting CRISPR-Cas9 to edit in a human cell was not a difficult leap or a major new invention. It was very well known how you could tag proteins with nuclear localization signals 
to get them to go into the nucleus, which is what we did with Cas9. It was also well known how to change the codon usage in a gene so it would be expressed well in mammalian cells versus bacteria, and we did that as well. So she did not feel that it was a great inventive step, even though she was racing to be the first to do it. It merely required adapting methods that others had used in the past, such as with tailins, to get enzymes into the nucleus of a cell. East had been able to do it in a few months. It was easy once you knew the components, Doudna says. A first-year grad student was able to do it. Doudna felt it was important to publish something as soon as possible. She realized, correctly as it turned out, that if other labs became the first to show that CRISPR-Cas9 could be ported to human cells, they would claim that to be a major discovery. So she pushed East to firm up her data through repeated experiments. In the meantime, Yenik worked on ways to turn the single-guide RNA that they had devised in test tubes into a guide that could get Cas9 to the right target in a human cell. It was not easy. The single-guide RNA that he had engineered was not, it turned out, quite long enough to work most efficiently on human DNA. Chapter 26. Photo Finish. Zhang's Final Lap. When Feng Zhang began to test the idea of using a single-guide RNA, he discovered that the version described in the Doudna-Charpentier paper of June 2012 worked poorly in human cells. So he made a longer version of the single-guide RNA that included a hairpin turn. That made the single-guide more efficient. Zhang's modification showed one difference between doing something in a test tube, like Doudna's team, and doing it in human cells. Jennifer was probably convinced by the biochemical results that the RNA didn't need that extra chunk, he says. She thought the short, single guide that Yenik had engineered was sufficient because it worked in a test tube. I knew that biochemistry does not always predict what will actually happen in living cells. Zhang also did other things to improve the CRISPR-Cas9 system and optimize it so that it would work in human cells. It's sometimes hard to get a large molecule through the membrane surrounding a cell nucleus. Zhang used a technique that involved tagging the Cas9 enzyme with a nuclear localization sequence, which grants a protein access to the otherwise impenetrable cell nucleus. In addition, he used a well-known technique called codon optimization to make the CRISPR-Cas9 system work in human cells. Codons are the three-letter snippets of DNA that provide instructions for the specific arrangement of amino acids, which are the building blocks used to make proteins. A variety of codons can code for the same amino acid. In different organisms, one or another of these alternative codons may work more efficiently. When trying to move a gene expression system from one organism to another, such as from bacteria to a human, Codon optimization switches the codon sequence to the one that works best. On October 5, 2012, Zhang sent his paper to the editors of Science, who accepted it on December 12. Among the authors were Shui Liang Lin, 
the postdoc who said that Zhang was making little progress until after the Doudna Charpentier paper appeared, and Luciano Marafini, who had helped Zhang focus on Cas9, but would later be dropped from his main patent application. After describing their experiments and results, their paper concluded with one of those significant final sentences. The ability to carry out multiplex genome editing in mammalian cells enables powerful applications across basic science, biotechnology, and medicine. Zhang versus Church For 25 years, George Church had been working on various methods to engineer genes. He had trained Feng Zhang and was still nominally the academic advisor of Zhang's lead co-author, Lutsong. But until the late fall of 2012, he hadn't been told, or thought he hadn't been told, by either of them that they had been working for more than a year on turning CRISPR into a human gene-editing tool. It was not until November of that year, when Church went to the Broad Institute to give a talk, that he found out that Zhang had submitted a paper to science on using CRISPR-Cas9 in human cells. That was a shock, because Church had just submitted a paper to the same journal on the same topic. He was furious and felt betrayed. He had previously published papers on gene editing with Zhang, and he didn't realize that his former student now considered him a rival rather than a collaborator. I guess Fung didn't get the full culture of my lab, Church says. Or maybe he just felt the stakes were so high so he didn't tell me. Although Lutsong had moved to the Broad to work with Zhang, he was still a graduate student at Harvard, and Church was still officially his advisor. It was upsetting and seemed to me a breach of protocol that my own student was doing something he knew would interest me, but he kept from me, Church says. Church raised the issue with the Harvard Medical School's Dean for Graduate Studies, who agreed that it was improper. Eric Lander then accused Church of bullying Lutsong. I didn't want to make a federal case out of it, Church says. I didn't think I was bullying him, but Eric did, so I backed off. In order to sort this out, I shuttled back and forth between the various contending parties, finding myself constantly reminded that memory can be an unreliable guide to history. Zhang insists that he did, in fact, tell Church that he was working on CRISPR in August 2012, when they drove together to the San Francisco airport from a cutting-edge conference known as Science Foo Camp, held on the Google campus an hour away. Church has narcolepsy, and he admits he could have dropped off to sleep while Zhang was talking. But even if that happened... It does not, at least in Church's opinion, get Zhang off the hook for failing to communicate his plans, since he surely would have noticed that he was getting no response from Church. Over dinner one night, I asked Lander his view of the dispute. Church's narcolepsy issue is nonsense, he insists, and he accuses Church of starting his own work on CRISPR only after Zhang told him he was embarked on that task. When I ask Church about this, I think that I can detect his placid face tightening beneath his beard. That is absurd, he replies. If my students had told me that they wanted to establish their own name in this, I would have backed off. I had a lot else I could have done. The quarrel so unsettled Lutsong, who is shy and polite, 
that he subsequently avoided doing much more work in the CRISPR field. When I tracked him down at Stanford Medical School, where he is focusing his research on immunology and neuroscience, he had just returned from his honeymoon. He told me that he thought he had behaved properly when he withheld from church the details of what he was doing in Zheng's lab. The two labs were independent research groups at two institutions, he says. The principal investigators, Zheng and Church, were responsible for sharing information or materials. This is what we were taught as entering Ph.D. students in our responsible conduct of research class. When I tell him Song's version of the story, Church chuckles. He teaches an ethics course at Harvard, and he agrees that the behavior of Zheng and Song was not unethical. It was within the norms of science. It did, however, violate the norms he tried to cultivate in his own lab. History would have been a little different, he says, if Zheng and Song had stayed working for him rather than moving to the Broad. If they had stayed in my lab, where there was a culture of open behavior, I would have made sure that their relationship with Jennifer was much more collaborative and there wouldn't have been all the patent battles. Ingrained in Church's character are instincts that promote reconciliation. Zhang, likewise, avoids conflict. He uses his disarming smile as an effective shield to avoid confrontation. When one of our grandchildren was born, Feng sent us a colorful playmat with the alphabet on it, Church says. He also invites me to his workshops each year. We all move on. Zhang feels likewise. We hug when we see each other. Church succeeds. Church and Zheng ended up in a virtual tie in showing how CRISPR-Cas9 could be engineered for use in human cells. Church submitted his paper to Science on October 26th, three weeks after Zheng sent his. After dealing with referee comments, they were both accepted by the editors on the same date, December 12th, and were published online simultaneously on January 3rd, 2013. Like Zhang, Church created a version of Cas9 that was codon-optimized and had a nuclear localization sequence. Drawing on, and crediting more generously than Zhang did, the Doudna Charpentier paper of June 2012, Church also synthesized a single-guide RNA. His version was longer than the one Zhang devised and ended up working even better. In addition, Church provided templates for the homology-directed repair of the DNA after CRISPR-Cas9 had made its double-strand break. Though their papers differ somewhat, they both came to the same historic conclusion. Our results establish an RNA-guided editing tool, Church's paper declared. The editor at Science was surprised and a bit suspicious that the journal had received two papers on the same topic from researchers who were supposed to be colleagues and collaborators. Was he being gamed? The editor felt as if Fung and I were doing some kind of double-dipping, doing two papers when we should have submitted one, Church recalls. He required a letter from me saying these papers were actually done without knowledge of each other. Chapter 27 Doudna's Final Sprint in November 2012, Doudna and her team were pushing hard to pin down the results of their experiments 
so they could win the race to publish on the use of CRISPR-Cas9 in humans. She didn't know that Church had just submitted a paper to science, and she had barely heard of Feng Zhang, who also had. Then she got a phone call from a colleague. I hope you're sitting down, the caller said. CRISPR is turning out to be absolutely spectacular in George Church's hands. Doudna already knew from Church's email that he was working on CRISPR, and when she heard about his progress in making it work in humans, she gave him a call. He was gracious and explained the experiments he had done and the paper he had submitted. By then, Church had learned about Zhang's work, and he told Doudna that it was slated for publication as well. Church agreed to send Doudna a copy of his manuscript as soon as the editors at Science accepted it. When she received it in early December, she was deflated. Yenik was still doing experiments in her lab, and the data they had were not as extensive as those of Church. Should I still go ahead and try to publish my work anyway? She asked Church. He said yes. He was very supportive of our work and of us publishing, she says. I thought he behaved as a great colleague. Whatever experimental data she produced, Church told Doudna, would add to the accumulation of evidence, especially on how best to tailor the RNA guide. I felt it was important to keep pushing with our experiments, even if others were already doing the same work, Doudna later told me, because that would show how easy it was to use Cas9 for human genome editing. It showed that you didn't have to have special expertise to use the technology, and I felt that was important for people to know. Publishing their work would also help her stake a claim that she had demonstrated CRISPR-Cas9 could work in human cells at approximately the same time as competing labs had. That meant she needed to get her paper published quickly. So she called a colleague at Berkeley, who had recently started an open-access electronic journal, eLife, that published papers after less review time than traditional journals, such as Science and Nature. I talked to him, described the data, and sent him a title, Doudna says. He said it sounded interesting, and he would get it reviewed quickly. Yenik, however, was reluctant to rush their paper into print. He's a real perfectionist, and he wanted to have a lot more data, a bigger story, she recalls. He felt what we had wasn't worth publishing. They had many heated discussions, including one in the Berkeley Quad in front of their lab in Stanley Hall, Martin, we have to publish this, even if it's not quite the story we wish we could tell, Doudna said. We have to put out the best story that we can, with the data that we have, because we don't have any more time. These other papers are coming out, and we have to publish. If we publish this work, we're going to look like amateurs in the genome editing field, Yenik shot back. But Martin, we are amateurs, and it's okay, she replied. I don't think people are going to think badly of us. If we had six more months, we could do a lot more. But I think you will understand better as time goes by that it's incredibly important for us to publish this right now. Doudna recalls that she put her foot down, and after a bit more discussion, they came to an agreement. Enoch would put together the data and figures for the experiments, but Doudna would have to write the paper. At the time, she was working on revising a second edition of a textbook on molecular biology she had written with two colleagues. We hadn't been entirely happy with the first edition, 
So we rented a house in Carmel to have a two-day powwow on how to revise it, she says. As a result, she found herself in mid-December in Carmel, where it was wickedly cold, in a house that had no working heat. The owners said they would call a repair person, but they couldn't get anyone out there right away. So Doudna and her co-authors huddled around the fireplace as they worked late into the night revising their textbook. After everyone went to bed at 11 p.m., Doudna stayed up to prepare her CRISPR paper for eLife. I was exhausted and cold, and I realized that I had to write the paper then or it wouldn't get written, she says. So I sat up for three hours in bed, pinching myself to stay awake, and typed out the text of a draft. She sent it off to Yenik, who kept coming back with suggestions. I didn't tell my textbook co-authors or editors about any of this, so you can imagine the scene where I'm in this freezing cold house trying to talk about this textbook, but I'm totally distracted because I knew I had to get the paper written and Martin kept coming back with revisions. Finally, she cut Yenik off and declared the paper finished. On December 15th, she emailed it to eLife. A few days later, she and her husband Jamie and their son Andy left for a ski vacation in Utah. She spent a lot of her time in their room at the lodge as she negotiated little fixes with Yenik and pushed the eLife editor to speed up the reviewing process. Every morning she would check the Science Magazine website to see if the Church or Zhang paper had been published. The main scholar who was doing the peer review of her paper was in Germany, and Doudna was prodding him by email almost daily. She was also on the phone with her former collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier, who was in Umia, where it was now dark all day. I was trying to manage my relationship with her, and I didn't want her to feel that we had somehow cut her out of that story, but the reality was that she hadn't participated in the science for the eLife paper, Doudna says. So we acknowledged her, but in the end, she wasn't a co-author. Doudna sent her a draft of the manuscript, hoping she would not be upset. I'm fine, Charpentier responded without much elaboration. There was a certain frostiness. What Doudna did not quite understand was that even though Charpentier had not wanted to collaborate on the effort to edit human cells, she felt a little proprietary about the CRISPR-Cas9 system. After all, she was the one who had brought Doudna in on that work when they met in Puerto Rico. When the peer review coordinator in Germany finally got back with comments, he asked for a few additional experiments. A few of the mutated targets must be sequenced, just to demonstrate that the expected types of mutations are present, he wrote. Doudna was able to brush him back. Doing the suggested experiments would require analyses of close to a hundred clones, she replied, which would be better performed as part of a larger study. She prevailed, and on January 3, 2013, eLife accepted her paper. But she couldn't celebrate. The evening before, she had received, out of the blue, a Happy New Year email that did not portend a Happy New Year. From Feng Zhang, sent Wednesday, January 2, 2013, 7.36 p.m. To Jennifer Doudna, subject, CRISPR, attachments, CRISPR manuscript, PDF. Dear Dr. Doudna, greetings from Boston and Happy New Year. I am an assistant professor at MIT and have been working on developing applications based on the CRISPR system. 
I met you briefly during my graduate school interview at Berkeley back in 2004 and have been very inspired by your work since then. Our group, in collaboration with Luciano Marafini at Rockefeller, recently completed a set of studies applying the Type II CRISPR system to carry out genome editing of mammalian cells. The study was recently accepted by Science, and it will be publishing online tomorrow. I have attached a copy of our paper for your review. The Cas9 system is very powerful, and I would love to talk with you sometime. I am sure we have a lot of synergy, and perhaps there are things that would be good to collaborate on in the future. Very best wishes, Fung. Fung Jung, Ph.D., core member, Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. If Yenik had been less bulky, I later asked Doudna, might her paper have been published sooner? Might she have been able to tie or even beat Jung and Church, even though her team had finished their experiments after them? It would have been tough, Doudna says. I don't think so. We were still doing experiments right up until the very last minute, because Martin, rightfully, wanted to make sure that the data included in the paper had been replicated three times. I wish it had been possible to submit earlier, but it probably wasn't. Their paper did not have an extended version of the guide RNA, which both Jung and Church showed worked better in human cells. Unlike Church's paper, theirs also did not include templates for homology-directed repair that would create more reliable DNA edits. However, it did show that a lab specializing in biochemistry could quickly move CRISPR-Cas9 from a test tube to human cells. We show here that Cas9 can be expressed and localized to the nucleus of human cells, Doudna wrote. These results demonstrate the feasibility of RNA-programmed genome editing in human cells. Some great discoveries and inventions, such as Einstein's theories of relativity and the creation of the transistor at Bell Labs, are singular advances. Others, such as the invention of the microchip and the application of CRISPR to editing human cells, were accomplished by many groups at around the same time. On the same day that Doudna's paper appeared in eLife, January 29, 2013, a fourth paper was published online, showing that CRISPR-Cas9 worked in human cells. It was by a South Korean researcher, Jin Soo Kim, who had been corresponding with Doudna and credited her June 2012 paper for laying the ground for his own work. Your science paper prompted us to start this project, he had written in a July email. A fifth paper published that day by Keith Jung of Harvard showed that CRISPR-Cas9 could genetically engineer the embryos of zebrafish. Even though Doudna had been beaten by a few weeks by Jung and Church, the fact that five different papers on CRISPR-Cas9 editing in animal cells all appeared in January 2013 reinforced the argument that this discovery was inevitable after it had been shown that it could work in a test tube. Whether that was a difficult step, as Jung contends, or an obvious step, as Doudna claims, the idea of using an easily programmed RNA molecule to target specific genes and change them was, for humanity, a momentous step into a new age. Chapter 28 Forming Companies, 
Square Dances. In December 2012, a few weeks before the multiple papers on CRISPR gene editing were due to be published, Doudna arranged for one of her business associates, Andy May, to meet with George Church at his Harvard lab. An Oxford-educated molecular biologist, May was the scientific advisor at Caribou Biosciences, the biotech company that Doudna had started with Rachel Horwitz in 2011, and he wanted to explore the business potential for using CRISPR-based gene editing as a medical technology. Doudna was giving a seminar in San Francisco when May tried to reach her to report on the meeting. Can we talk later tonight? She texted back. Yes, but I really need to talk to you, he responded. When she reached him, she was driving back to Berkeley. He began by saying, Are you sitting down? Yes, of course, I'm driving home, she replied. Well, I hope you don't drive off the road, he said, because I had this incredible meeting with George, who says this will be the most amazing discovery. He's changing his entire gene-editing focus to CRISPR. The excitement over the potential of CRISPR provoked all of the major players to begin square dancing, forming groups and swapping partners in the quest to create companies that would commercialize CRISPR for medical applications. Doudna and May decided, at first, to launch a company with Church and, if they could corral them, some of the other CRISPR pioneers. So in January 2013, Horwitz accompanied May back to Boston for another meeting with Church. Church's bushy beard and cultivated eccentricities continued to make him a scientific celebrity, and on the day of the meeting, that caused him to be distracted. In an interview with the German magazine Spiegel, he had offhandedly speculated about the possibility of resurrecting a Neanderthal by implanting its DNA in the egg of a volunteer surrogate mother. Not surprisingly, except perhaps to him, his phone rang nonstop as tabloid reporters jumped on the story. But he finally focused on his meeting, and within an hour they had a plan. They would try to enlist Emmanuel Charpentier and Feng Zhang, along with a few top venture capitalists, into a grand consortium to commercialize CRISPR. Charpentier, in the meantime, was working on a potential startup of her own. Earlier in 2012, she had contacted Roger Novak, her one-time boyfriend and longtime scientific partner, whom she had befriended when they were researchers at Rockefeller University and in Memphis. They had remained close personal friends, and he had by then joined the pharmaceutical company Sanofi in Paris. What do you think about CRISPR? she asked him. What are you talking about? he replied. But once he studied her data and consulted with some of his colleagues at Sanofi, he realized it would make sense to launch a business around it. So he called a close friend who was a venture capitalist, Sean Foy, and they decided to discuss the prospect by going on a surfing trip, even though neither of them knew how to surf, off the northern part of Vancouver Island. A month later, after he had done some more due diligence, Foy called Novak and said they needed to launch a company as soon as possible. You have to quit your job, he told Novak, who eventually did. In the hope of getting all the main players to coalesce, a brunch meeting was scheduled in February 2013 at the Blue Room, 
a once-trendy restaurant with zinc-topped tables, nestled in a renovated brick factory near MIT. It was located in Kendall Square in Cambridge, an epicenter of institutions that turned basic science into profitable applications. Corporate research centers, such as those of Novartis and Biogen and Microsoft, nonprofit institutes such as the Broad and the Whitehead, and a few federal funding agencies such as the National Transportation Systems Center. Invited to the brunch were Doudna, Charpentier, Church, and Zhang. At the last minute, Zhang canceled, but Church urged that they forge ahead without him. We need to start a company because there is so much we can do with this, he said. It's so powerful. How big do you think it is? Doudna asked him. Well, Jennifer, all that I can tell you is that there is a tidal wave coming, he replied. Doudna wanted to work with Charpentier, even though they had been drifting apart scientifically. I spent many hours on the phone with her trying to convince her to come along as a co-founder of what I was doing with George, Doudna says. But she really did not want to work with some of the folks in Boston. I think she didn't trust them. And in the end, I think she was right. But I didn't see that at the time. I was trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. Church was not as eager to have Charpentier on board. I became somewhat wary about joining forces with her, he says. One of the reasons we didn't go in with her was because her boyfriend wanted to be CEO. We just felt that was a non-starter. You needed to have a process by which you pick the CEO. I was willing to go with it. I tend to be accommodating. But Jennifer laid out the reasons against it, and I said, yeah, you're right. In fact, by then, Novak and Charpentier were no longer romantically involved. Andy May had the same negative reaction when Doudna arranged for him to meet with Novak and Foy. They came in pretty heavy-handed, May says of Charpentier's two business partners. Their initial approach was that we should get out of the way and let them take care of it. To be fair, both Novak and Foy had been involved in businesses and knew what they were doing. So along with Charpentier, they broke off discussions with the Doudna Church Group and instead founded a company of their own, CRISPR Therapeutics, initially based in Switzerland, but later also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was extremely easy to access money then, especially if you were called CRISPR, Novak says. For a while in 2013, it seemed as if Doudna and Jung, despite their rivalry, might become business allies or partners, after he missed the February 2013 brunch at the Blue Room, Zhang sent Doudna an email asking if she might like to collaborate on topics related to the brain, which had long been one of his interests. I remember sitting at my desk here at my kitchen in Berkeley, seeing him on Skype, she says. He came out to San Francisco for a conference that spring and met Doudna at the Claremont Hotel in Berkeley. I went to see her because I thought it was important to have some common alliance around the intellectual property so that you could make this a clean field for people to practice, Jung says. His idea was that Berkeley's intellectual property and potential patents would be put into a pool with the Broads, which would make it easy for users to license the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Jung thought Doudna liked the idea, 
so Lander phoned her to see if they could establish the framework for such a patent pool. The next day, Eric told me that my trip was productive, Jung says, and he thought we had cemented the alliance. But Doudna had qualms. I just didn't get a good feeling from Fung, she recalls. He was not forthright. He was being cagey about when they had actually filed for patents. It didn't sit well with me. So she decided to give an exclusive license of her intellectual property, which Berkeley managed in coordination with Charpentier, to her existing firm, Caribou Biosciences, and not do an alliance with the Broad. Jung says that he thinks Doudna has difficulty trusting people, so she relied too heavily on her former student and Caribou co-founder Horwitz. Rachel is a nice person and smart, but not the right person to be the CEO of such a company, he says. Someone much more seasoned in terms of being able to develop the technology is really important. The decision not to pool the CRISPR-Cas9 intellectual property would pave the way for an epic patent battle. It also would end up hampering the easy and widespread licensing of the technology. I think, in retrospect, if I had to do it over again, I would have licensed it differently, Doudna says. When you have a platform technology like CRISPR, it's probably a better idea to license it in a way that offers it as broadly as possible. She had no expertise with intellectual property, and she was at a university that didn't have much either. It was kind of like the blind leading the blind, she says. Editas Medicine Although she did not want to put her intellectual property into a pool with the Broads, Doudna was still open to becoming a partner in a CRISPR-focused company that would license both her potential patents and those of the Broad. So throughout the spring and summer of 2013, she traveled many times to Boston to dance with a rotating cast of investors and scientists, including Church and Jung, who were trying to put together companies. On one trip in early June, she went jogging one evening along the Charles River by Harvard, remembering her days there studying RNA under Jack Shostak. Back then, she never thought that her research would lead to commercial ventures. It was not part of the ethos at Harvard. Now Harvard had changed, and so had she. If she wanted to have a direct impact on people, she realized that forming companies would be the best way to translate the basic science of CRISPR into clinical applications. As the negotiations dragged on through the summer, the stress of figuring out how to form a company began to wear her down. So did flying between San Francisco and Boston every few weeks. Particularly difficult was having to choose between working with Charpentier or with Church and Zhang. I couldn't tell what the right decision was, she admits. A couple of people in Berkeley colleagues that I trusted and had started companies in the past were telling me to definitely work with the people in Boston because they were better at business. Until then, she had rarely gotten sick. But now, in the summer of 2013, she found herself being hit with waves of pain and fever, her joints locked up in the morning, and sometimes she could barely move. She went to a few doctors who speculated that she might have a rare virus or perhaps an autoimmune condition. The problems receded after a month, but then they recurred on a trip to Disneyland with her son late in the summer.
It was just the two of us, and each morning I'd wake up in our hotel and everything was hurting, she recalls. I didn't want to wake up Andy, so I would go in the bathroom, close the door, and get on the phone with these people in Boston. The stress of the situation, she realized, was affecting her physically. Nevertheless, she was able to reach an agreement with the Boston men by the end of the summer. A group coalesced with Doudna, Jung, and Church at its core. Some Boston-based investment firms, Third Rock Ventures, Polaris Partners, and Flagship Ventures, provided commitments for more than $40 million in initial funding. The group decided to have five scientific founders, so they added two top Harvard biologists who had been working on CRISPR, Keith Jung and David Liu. It seemed like the five of us were pretty much a dream team, says Church. Their board included representatives from each of the three major investment firms, along with some distinguished scientists. There was a general consensus about most members, but Church did end up vetoing the selection of Eric Lander. In September 2013, Genjin Inc. was founded. Two months later, it changed its name to Editus Medicine. We have the ability to essentially target any gene, said Kevin Bitterman, a principal at Polaris Partners, who served as the interim president for the first few months. And we have in our crosshairs any diseases with a genetic component. We can go in and fix the error. Doudna quits. After only a few months, Doudna's discomfort and stress began to resurface. She sensed that her partners, especially Jung, were doing things behind her back, and her qualms worsened at a January 2014 medical conference hosted in San Francisco by J.P. Morgan. Jung came out from Boston with some of the management team from Editus, and they invited Doudna to a couple of meetings with potential investors. She got bad vibes as soon as she walked in. I could immediately tell from Fung's behavior and body language that something had changed, she says. He wasn't collegial anymore. As she watched from a corner, the men at the meeting clustered around Jung and treated him as the principal. He was introduced as the inventor of CRISPR gene editing. Doudna was treated as a secondary player, one of the scientific advisors. I was being cut out, she says. There were things involving the intellectual property, and I wasn't being kept informed. There was something afoot. Then she was hit with a surprising piece of news, one that made her understand why she had the queasy sense that Jung was keeping her in the dark. On April 15, 2014, she received an email from a reporter asking for her reaction to the news that Jung and the Broad had just been granted a patent for the use of CRISPR-Cas9 as an editing tool. Doudna and Charpentier still had a patent application pending, but Jung and the Broad, who had put in their own application later, had paid to have their decision fast-tracked. Suddenly it became clear, to Doudna at least, that Jung and Lander were trying to relegate her and Charpentier to minor players, both in history and in any commercial use of CRISPR-Cas9. It dawned on Doudna that this was why Jung and many of the other folks at Editus had seemed secretive with her. The finance people in Boston had been positioning Jung as the inventor. 
They've known about this for months, she said to herself, and now this patent has been issued, and they're trying to completely cut me out and stab me in the back. It wasn't just Jung, she felt. It was the gang of men who dominated the biotech and finance world of Boston. All the Boston people were so interconnected, she says. Eric Lander was on an advisory board for Third Rock Ventures, and there was equity going back to the Broad from Editus, and there's licensing agreements that can make them tons of money as long as Fung is seen as the inventor. The episode made her physically ill. In addition, she was exhausted. She had been flying to Boston once a month for meetings at Editus. It was brutal. I'd buy an economy-class ticket, sit straight up for five hours, and then get in at seven in the morning. I'd go to the United Club, take a shower, change my clothes, go to Editus, have our meetings, and then I'd often go to Church's lab to talk about science. Then I would jump on a 6 p.m. flight back to California. So she decided to quit. She talked to a lawyer about how to extract herself from the agreement she had signed. It took a little time, but by June they had drafted an email to the CEO of Editus saying that she was resigning. They finalized the text over the phone when she was at a meeting in Germany. Okay, it's ready to go, the lawyer told her after they wrestled with a few final changes. It was evening in Germany and afternoon in Boston when she hit the send button. I wondered how many minutes it would be until my phone would ring, she says. It was less than five minutes, and it was the editor's CEO calling. No, no, you can't go. You can't leave, he said. What's wrong? Why are you doing this? You know what you did to me, she replied. I'm done. I'm not going to work with people I can't trust, people who stab you in the back. You stabbed me in the back. The editor's CEO denied being involved in Jung's patent filings. Look, Doudna replied, you may be right or you may be wrong, but either way, I can't be part of this company anymore. I'm done. What about all your stock? He asked. I don't care, she shot back. You don't understand. I'm not doing it for the money. And if you think I'm doing it for the money, you don't understand me at all. When Doudna recounted the episode to me, it was the first time I had heard her so angry. Her steady tone had disappeared. He claimed he didn't know what I was talking about, and it was ridiculous. It was bullshit. It was all a bunch of lies. And I could be wrong, Walter, but that was my feeling about it. All of the founders of the company, including Jung, sent her emails that day asking her to reconsider they offered to make amends and do whatever was possible to heal the rift, but she refused. I'm done, she emailed back. Immediately, she felt better. It suddenly seemed like this big weight came off my shoulders. When she explained the situation to Church, he suggested that, if she wanted, he would consider quitting as well. I had had a phone call with George at his house on a Sunday, she says. He vaguely offered to step down, but then he decided not to, and that was his decision. I asked Church whether Doudna was right to mistrust the other founders. They were conspiring behind her back, filing for patents without telling her, he agrees. But he says that Doudna should not have been surprised. 
Zhang was acting in his self-interest. He probably had lawyers telling him what to do and say, says Church. I try to understand why people do things. Everyone's actions, including those of Zhang and Lander, could have been predicted, he believes. Everyone did what I would have expected them to do. So why didn't he quit, I ask. He explains that it was not logical to be surprised by their behavior, so it was not logical to quit because of it. I almost left with her, but then I thought, what would that accomplish? It would reward them by giving them the rest of the profits. I always advise people to stay calm. After I thought about it for a while, I decided it was better to be a little calm. I wanted to see a company succeed. Shortly after she left Editus, Doudna was at a conference where she explained what happened to Charpentier. Oh, that's interesting, Charpentier responded. Would you like to get involved with CRISPR Therapeutics? That was the company that she had founded with Novak. You know, it's like getting a divorce, Doudna replied. I'm not sure I want to get involved again right away. I'm kind of done with companies now. Within a few months, she decided that she would be most comfortable working with her trusted partner and former student, Rachel Horwitz, with whom she had started Caribou Biosciences in 2011. Caribou had created a spin-off called Intellia with the mission of commercializing CRISPR-Cas9 tools. I became very interested in Intellia because the Caribou team was launching it with the academic scientists I most liked and trusted and respected. Doudna says. These included three great CRISPR pioneers, Rodolphe Barangou, Eric Sontheimer, and Jung's former collaborator, Luciano Marafini. They were all brilliant, but had an even more important trait. They were all people who do good science, but are more importantly, honorable straight shooters. As a result, the pioneers of CRISPR-Cas9 ended up in three competing companies, CRISPR Therapeutics, founded by Charpentier and Novak, Editus Medicine, which included Jung and Church and Doudna until she resigned, and Intellia Therapeutics, founded by Doudna, Barangu, Sontheimer, Marafini, and Horwitz. Chapter 29. Mon Ami. Drifting Apart. Doudna's decision to go with a competing company reflected, and perhaps contributed to, the slight coolness that had developed between her and Charpentier. She had tried hard to maintain their relationship. For example, when they first started working together, one of their goals was to crystallize Cas9 and determine its exact structure. After Doudna and her lab succeeded in doing so in late 2013, she asked Charpentier if she wanted to be a co-author on the resulting journal article. Charpentier, feeling it was a project she had brought to the Doudna lab, responded that she would like that. This annoyed Yenik, but Doudna went along. I was really trying to bend over backwards to be generous to her, she says, and frankly, I wanted to maintain our scientific and personal relationship. Partly as a way to keep their scientific partnership intact, Doudna suggested to Charpentier that they co-author a review article for science in 2014. Unlike a research article, 
which is a featured paper on a new discovery. A review article is a survey of recent advances on a particular topic. Theirs was titled, The New Frontier of Genome Engineering with CRISPR-Cas9. Doudna wrote a draft, and Charpentier made some edits. It helped to paper over, so to speak, any rift that might be developing between them. Nevertheless, they began drifting apart. Rather than join Doudna in the quest to find ways to use CRISPR-Cas9 in humans, Charpentier told her that she planned to focus on fruit flies and bacteria. I like basic research more than looking for tools, she says. There was another underlying reason for the strain. From Doudna's perspective, she was an equal co-discoverer of the CRISPR-Cas9 system, but Charpentier viewed CRISPR-Cas9 as her own project, one that she had brought Doudna into late in the game. At times, she spoke of it as my work and referred to Doudna as if she were a secondary collaborator. Now Doudna was basking in the limelight, giving interviews and making plans to pursue new CRISPR-Cas9 studies. Doudna never quite understood Charpentier's proprietary feelings and couldn't figure out how to deal with the coolness that was evident beneath her warm and insouciant manner. She kept suggesting ways they could work together, and Charpentier would reply, That sounds great, but then nothing would happen. I wanted to continue collaborating, and Emmanuel clearly didn't, Doudna says with sadness in her voice. She never came out and said that to me. We just drifted apart. Eventually, Doudna became frustrated. I came to feel that it was a passive-aggressive way of interacting, she says. It was frustrating, and it was hurtful. Part of their problem was the different levels of comfort each had with publicity. When they met at awards ceremonies or conferences, the interactions could be awkward, especially at photo sessions where Charpentier exuded a subtly condescending and amused attitude when the limelight focused on Doudna. Eric Lander, Doudna's occasional antagonist at the Broad Institute, told me that when he talked to Charpentier, she expressed resentment at the publicity Doudna got. Roger Novak saw Doudna as an American, comfortable with acclaim, and his friend Charpentier, whose reputation he protected, as a more properly reticent Parisian. He pushed Charpentier to do more interviews and even get training in how to deal with the media. It's just a different style of an individual, not being on the West Coast, but being European, a French person, who focuses more on science than on media hype, he later said. That is not fully accurate. Although she was comfortable with being a public figure and flattered by recognition, Doudna was not, in fact, someone who actively sought celebrity. She made a point of trying to share the limelight and prizes with Charpentier. Rodolphe Barangou puts more of the blame on Charpentier. Emmanuel makes people feel uncomfortable, even when it comes time to pose for pictures or to be in a green room before a public appearance, he says. It's baffling to me, her lack of desire to share credit with others. I watch Jennifer trying to share the limelight and even overcompensate, but Emmanuel will seem slightly recalcitrant and resistant. Their difference in style was reflected in many ways, including their musical tastes. At one of the award ceremonies they attended together, 
they each got to choose the song that would play when they went on stage. Doudna chose Billie Holiday's bluesy rendition of On the Sunny Side of the Street. Charpentier selected a techno-punk piece from the French electronica duo Daft Punk. One substantive issue that came between them is one that historians know all too well. Almost every person in any saga tends to remember their own role as being a little more important than the other players see it. That's true in our own lives. We recall vividly the brilliance of our own contributions to a discussion. We are a bit hazier when recalling the contributions of others, or we tend to minimize their significance. As Charpentier views the CRISPR narrative, she was the one who first worked on Cas9, identified its components, and then brought Doudna into the project. Take, for example, the pesky little issue that keeps cropping up in this tale of the ongoing role of tracer RNA, which not only helps to create the CRISPR RNA that guides to a targeted gene, but then also, as Doudna and Charpentier revealed in their 2012 paper, sticks around to help the CRISPR-Cas9 complex cleave the targeted DNA. After they published the paper, Charpentier would occasionally suggest that she knew about the ongoing role of tracer RNA back in 2011, before she started collaborating with Doudna. This began to annoy Doudna. If you look at talks that she's given recently and the slides she has shown, my opinion is that she's been coached by lawyers and is trying to present the work as if they already knew that the tracer RNA was important for Cas9's function before we started our collaboration. And I think that's disingenuous. It's untrue, Doudna says. I don't know whether that was her doing or coaching by lawyers, but I think she kind of tried to blur the line between what she did in her 2011 paper and what was figured out much later. When I ask Charpentier over dinner about the coolness that has developed between them, she is circumspect. She knows, after all, that I am writing a book with Doudna as the central character, and she has never tried to persuade me to shift my focus. With a dash of indifference, she admits that her March 2011 Nature paper did not, in fact, describe the full role of the tracer RNA, but she laughs and adds that Doudna should relax a bit and not be so competitive. She doesn't need to be so stressed about getting proper credit for the tracer RNA and things, Charpentier says. I find it unnecessary. She smiles as she describes Doudna's competitive streak, as if she finds that trait both admirable and amusing, but also faintly indecorous. Their rift was exacerbated in 2017, when Doudna published a book on her CRISPR work, co-authored with Sam Sternberg, that was judicious, but tended to use the first person more than Charpentier thought was seemly, It's written in the first person, even though her student did most of the writing, Charpentier says. He should have been told to write in the third person. I know people who do the prizes and the Swedish mentality. They don't like people to write books too early on. By putting the words prizes and Swedish in the same sentence, she was referring to the most famous of them all. Prizes One force that kept Doudna and Charpentier bonded was scientific prizes. Their chances for winning them were best as a pair. 
Some carry awards of $1 million or more, but they have an even more important value than the money. They serve as a scorecard that the public, press, and future historians use to decide who deserves the most credit for important advances. Lawyers even cite them in arguments made in patent cases. Each important science prize is given to a limited number of people. For the Nobel, the maximum is three in each field, so the awards do not reflect the full cast of players who contributed to a discovery. As a result, they can distort history and be a disincentive to collaboration, just like patents. One of the largest and most glamorous of these awards, the Breakthrough Prize in Life Sciences, was given to Doudna and Charpentier as a pair in November 2014, a few months after Jung beat them to the first patents. The citation heralded them for harnessing an ancient mechanism of bacterial immunity into a powerful and general technology for editing genomes. The prize, which carries a $3 million award for each recipient, had been established a year earlier by the Russian billionaire and early Facebook founder Yuri Milner, along with Sergey Brin of Google, Anne Wojcicki of 23andMe, and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Milner, an ebullient fanboy of scientists, staged a glittering televised award ceremony that infused the glory of science with some of the glamour of Hollywood. The 2014 Black Tie event, co-hosted by Vanity Fair, was held in a spacecraft hangar at NASA's Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley. The MCs included actors Seth MacFarlane, Kate Beckinsale, Cameron Diaz, and Benedict Cumberbatch. Christina Aguilera performed her hit Beautiful. Doudna and Charpentier, wearing elegant floor-length black gowns, were presented the prize by Cameron Diaz and Dick Costello, then the CEO of Twitter. Doudna took the microphone first and paid tribute to the puzzle-solving process that is science. Charpentier, with a puckish air, then turned to Diaz, who early in her career was a star in the Charlie's Angels films. We make three powerful women, Charpentier said, gesturing to Diaz and Doudna, and then turning to the bald and bespectacled Costello added, I was wondering if you were Charlie, in the audience was Eric Lander, who had been a prize winner the year before and had thus been given the duty to telephone Doudna and Charpentier to say they had won. As the director of the Broad Institute and Jung's mentor, he was zealously engaged in the battle against them for crisper kudos. But he had formed a slight bond with Charpentier, or thought he had, by sharing what he believed was her resentment about the acclaim Doudna was garnering, at first, Doudna was nominated for the Breakthrough Prize on her own, Lander told me. But he was able to persuade the prize jury that Doudna's contributions were not as significant as those of Charpentier, Jung, and the microbiologists who had originally discovered CRISPR in bacteria. I got the people to understand that Jennifer is probably prize-worthy, but not for CRISPR, but for her work on the structure of RNA, he says. CRISPR was an ensemble act with a lot of people, and Jennifer's contribution was not the most important. He was not able to prevail in having the prize go to Jung, 
but he did help make sure that Charpentier was selected along with Doudna. He also thought that he had an understanding that Zheng would win the following year. When that didn't happen, he would blame Doudna for blocking it. The breakthrough prizes are limited to two winners in each field. The Gardner Award in Biomedical Science, given by a Canadian foundation, is more expansive. It honors up to five researchers. That meant that when the foundation decided in 2016 to honor those who developed CRISPR, a broader array of scientists was represented. Doudna and Charpentier were joined by Zhang and the two Danisco yogurt researchers, Horvat and Barangu. It also meant that some very important players were left out, including Francisco Mojica, Eric Sontheimer, Luciano Marafini, Sylvain Moineau, Virginius Schixnes, and George Church. Doudna was upset by the exclusion of her friend Church, so she did two things. She donated her prize money, about $100,000, to the Personal Genetics Education Project, which Church had set up with his wife, Ting Wu, a Harvard molecular biology professor. The project encourages people, especially young students, to understand their genes. She also invited them to the ceremony. She was doubtful Church would accept. After all, he had been left out of the honors and, perhaps more significant, was resistant to wearing a tuxedo. But in his gracious manner, Church did show up, impeccably dressed with his wife. I'd like to take this opportunity to celebrate the work of two people who have inspired me for a very long time, George Church and Ting Wu, Doudna said. And then she pointedly noted Church's huge impact on the gene editing field, including adapting the CRISPR-Cas system for gene editing in mammalian cells. Doudna and Charpentier completed a hat trick by winning a third major award in 2018, the Kavli Prize. Named after Fred Kavli, an American entrepreneur born in Norway, it carries many of the trappings of the Nobel Prize. There's a glamorous ceremony, and for each recipient, $1 million and a gold medal stamped with a bust of the prize's founder. The award can go to three scientists, and the committee chose to add Virginius Schixnes, a fitting recognition that had until then eluded the shy Lithuanian. We dreamed of rewriting the language of life itself, and with the discovery of CRISPR, we found a new, powerful writing tool, said Norwegian actor Heidi Hrud Ellingsen, who co-hosted the ceremony with the American actor and science geek Alan Alda. Doudna wore a short black dress, Charpentier a long one, and Schixnes a sharp gray suit that looked as if it had been bought for the occasion. After being handed their medals, by King Harold V of Norway, they bowed slightly amid a fanfare of trumpets. Chapter 30 The Heroes of CRISPR Lander's Tale In the spring of 2015, while Emmanuel Charpentier was visiting America, she had lunch with Eric Lander in his office at the Broad Institute. In his recollection, she was in a funk and resentful of some of the acclaim that Doudna was getting. It became very clear to me that she is pissed at Jennifer, Lander recalls. 
She believed that the credit was going to her more than to the microbiologists, such as Francisco Mojica, Rodolphe Barangu, Philippe Horvat, and herself, who had originally figured out how CRISPR works in bacteria. Perhaps Lander was right, or perhaps he was in part projecting his own resentments and stoking ones that Charpentier only vaguely felt. Lander is a persuasive personality, who is good at getting people to agree with him. When I ask Charpentier about Lander's recollection, she gives a wry smile and suggests, with a tiny shrug, that the feelings were more Lander's than hers. Nevertheless, there was probably some truth to Lander's perceptions of her feelings. She was subtle and French about it, he recalls. His lunch conversation with Charpentier, Lander says, was the origin of what would become a detailed, vibrant, well-reported and controversial journal article on the history of CRISPR. After talking to Emmanuel, I decided to pull the thread and look back at the origins of CRISPR and give credit to the people who had done the original work but weren't getting the acclaim, he says. I have this streak in me that I defend the underdog. I was brought up in Brooklyn. I asked him whether he might have had other motivations as well, including a desire to downplay the role of Doudna and Charpentier, who were pitted against his protege, Feng Zhang, for patents and prizes. For someone who is so feisty, Lander can also be laudably self-aware. He answers by referring to Michael Frayn's play Copenhagen, which applied the uncertainty principle to the motives of Werner Heisenberg when he visited Niels Bohr early in World War II and discussed the possibility of making an atom bomb. Like the play Copenhagen, I cannot be sure of my own motivations, Lander says. You don't know your own motives. Wow, I think. One of the appealing things about Lander is that he is merrily and jubilantly competitive, pushing Jung to claim his credit, then driving the lawsuits to protect Jung's patents. His bristly mustache and enthusiastic eyes are at all times expressive, conveying every changing emotion in a way that would delight a poker opponent. His relentless drive and passion to persuade, he reminds me of the late diplomat Richard Holbrook, made him infuriating to rivals, but it also made him a hard-charging and effective team leader and institution builder. His paper on the history of CRISPR was an example of all of these instincts. After months of reading all the scientific papers and interviewing many of the participants by phone, Lander published The Heroes of CRISPR in the journal Cell in January 2016. At 8,000 words, it was vividly written and factually correct in its details. But it provoked a firestorm of responses from outraged critics who charged that it was skewed, in ways both subtle and heavy-handed, to tout the contributions of Jung and minimize those of Doudna. It was history weaponized. Lander's narrative began with Francisco Mojica and went through the other players I've discussed in this book, mixing personal color with scientific explanations of each step in the development of CRISPR. He described and praised the work of Charpentier in discovering the tracer RNA, but instead of then showing how she and Doudna went on to figure out the exact role of each component in 2012, he provided a long description 
of the work of the Lithuanian Shiksnes and his difficulty in getting published. When Lander got to Doudna, he was pleasant enough. He called her a world-renowned structural biologist and RNA expert, but he breezed by the work she did with Charpentier in just one paragraph out of the Article 67. Not surprisingly, Zhang was accorded a more lavish account. After stressing how difficult it was to move CRISPR-Cas9 from bacteria to human cells, Lander described in some detail, but without citing evidence, the work Zhang was doing in early 2012. As for Doudna's January 2013 paper, showing the system working in human cells, published three weeks after Zhang's, Lander dismissed it in a sentence that included the dagger-like accusation, with assistance from church. The main theme of Lander's essay was important and correct. Scientific breakthroughs are rarely eureka moments, he concluded. They are typically ensemble acts, played out over a decade or more, in which the cast becomes part of something greater than what any one of them could do alone. Yet the article clearly had another thrust, one that was done with a velvet glove, but was nonetheless an unmistakable diminishment of Doudna. Oddly, for an academic journal, Sell did not disclose that Lander's Broad Institute was competing for patents with Doudna and her colleagues. Doudna decided to be muted in her public reaction. She simply posted a comment online stating, The description of my lab's research and our interactions with other investigators is factually incorrect, was not checked by the author, and was not agreed to by me prior to publication. Charpentier was similarly upset. I regret that the description of me and my collaborators' contributions is incomplete and inaccurate, she posted. Church was more specific in his criticisms. He pointed out that he, not Zhang, first demonstrated the use in human cells of an extended guide RNA that ended up working the best. He also disputed the assertions that Doudna had taken information from the preprint he had sent her. Backlash Doudna's friends rallied to her cause with a fury that would have impressed a Twitter mob. In fact, it included a Twitter mob. The most vibrant and viral responses came from one of Doudna's high-octane colleagues at Berkeley, genetics professor Michael Eisen. There is something mesmerizing about an evil genius at the height of their craft, and Eric Lander is an evil genius at the height of his craft. He wrote and posted publicly a few days after the article appeared. He called the piece, at once so evil and yet so brilliant, that I find it hard not to stand in awe, even as I picture him, cackling loudly in his Kendall Square lair, giant laser weapon behind him, poised to destroy Berkeley if we don't hand over our patents. Eisen, who was up front about the fact that he was Doudna's partisan friend, charged that Lander's piece was an ingenious strategy to promote the Broad and denigrate Doudna under the veneer of a historical perspective. The piece is an elaborate lie, that organizes and twists history with no other purpose than to achieve Lander's goals, to win Zhang a Nobel Prize, 
and the Broad an insanely lucrative patent. It is, in its crucial moments, so disconnected from reality that it is hard to fathom how someone so brilliant could have written it. I think that is not fair or true. My own view is that Lander may have been guilty of zeal as a mentor and a zest for spinning, but not dishonesty. Other, more dispassionate scientists joined the criticism of Lander, with flames erupting on venues ranging from the scientific discussion board Pub Pier to Twitter. Shitstorm would be one term of art for the reaction in the genome community to a commentary in Cell by Eric Lander, wrote Nathaniel Comfort, a professor of the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Comfort called Lander's piece Whig History, suggesting that it was crafted in order to use history as a political tool. He even created a Twitter hashtag, hashtag Landergate, that became a rallying spot for those who thought Lander was insidiously slagging competitors of the Broad. In the influential MIT Technology Review, Antonio Regalado focused on Lander's assertions, not backed up with any citations, that Jung had made great progress on developing CRISPR-Cas9 tools a year before the Doudna Charpentier 2012 paper was published. Jung's discoveries weren't published at the time, and so they are not part of the official scientific record, Regalado wrote. But they're very important if Broad wants to hold on to its patents. No wonder, then, that Lander might like to see them described for the first time in an important journal such as Cell. I think that was a little Machiavellian on the part of Lander. Women scientists and writers, aware of the injustice done to Rosalind Franklin in some of the histories of DNA, were especially incensed at Lander, whose alpha male style had never endeared him to feminists, even though he had a laudable history of supporting women scientists. His write-up serves as yet another instance of a woman being written out of scientific history, Ruth Reader, a science journalist, wrote in Mike. This helps explain the urgency behind the backlash to Lander's report. Here again, a male leader appears to be usurping credit, and therefore financial gain, for a discovery that was the work of many. An article on Jezebel, which describes itself cheekily as a supposedly feminist website, was headlined, How One Man Tried to Write Women Out of CRISPR, the biggest biotech innovation in decades. In it, Joanna Rothkopf wrote, The crediting issue evokes that of Rosalind Franklin. The flare-up against Lander, which occurred while he was on a trip to Antarctica and could not easily respond, became so newsworthy that mainstream publications covered it. Stephen Hall in Scientific American called it the most entertaining food fight in science in years and asked, why would such a shrewd and strategic thinker like Lander tempt such a public backlash by writing such a cleverly slanted history? Hall quoted Church as saying of Lander, the only person that could hurt him was himself, and then merrily declaring, and you thought scientists couldn't talk smack. Lander responded by criticizing Doudna for not providing more input on the piece, when he emailed her some passages right before it went to press. I received input about the development of CRISPR 
from more than a dozen scientists around the world, Lander wrote in an email to Tracy Vance of The Scientist, Dr. Doudna was the only one who declined, which is unfortunate. Nevertheless, I fully respect her decision not to share her perspective. That final gauze-cloaked zinger was quintessential Lander. The article helped to draw the battle lines in the CRISPR war. Doudna's admirers at Harvard, led by Church and her Ph.D. advisor Jack Shostak, were infuriated. It's just an awful, awful piece of writing, Shostak tells me. Eric wants the credit for the genetic editing revolution to go to Feng Zhang and him, and not Jennifer. So he just totally belittled her contribution, in a way that seems just pure animus. Even within his own institution, Lander's piece raised hackles. After several members of the staff questioned him about it, he sent them an email addressed, Dear Brodies. It was unapologetic. The essay aims to describe the whole group of extraordinary scientists, many at the early stages of their careers, who took risks and made critical discoveries. He wrote, I'm very proud of the essay and its messages about science. A couple of months after publication, as the controversy still simmered, I got enlisted as a peripheral player. Christine Heenan, who was then vice president of communications at Harvard, was asked by Lander to help smooth things over. I had known Eric for a long time, and I was, and am, one of his alloyed admirers. So Heenan asked me to host a discussion with him for the press and scientific community at the Washington headquarters of the Aspen Institute, where I worked. Her goal was to tamp down the controversy by getting Lander to say that he hadn't meant to minimize Doudna's contributions to the CRISPR field. Lander tried to do what Heenan urged, albeit not in a way that could be described as valiantly. My intention is not to diminish anybody, he said, adding that Doudna was a spectacular scientist. That was about it. When he was pressed by the Washington Post's Joel Achenbach, he insisted that his article was factual and did not underplay Doudna's accomplishments. I caught Heenan's eye, and she shrugged. Chapter 31. Patents. Useful Arts. Ever since the Republic of Venice in 1474 passed a statute giving the inventors of any new and ingenious device the exclusive right to profit from it for ten years, people have been wrestling over patents. In the United States, they are enshrined in Article I of the Constitution. The Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. A year after ratification, Congress passed an act that allowed patents on any useful art, manufacture, engine, machine, or device, or any improvement thereon not before known. As courts came to realize, it's complicated to apply such concepts, even to things as simple as a doorknob. In the 1850 case, Hotchkiss v. Greenwood, 
which involved a patent application for the manufacture of doorknobs out of porcelain rather than wood, the U.S. Supreme Court began the process of defining what was obvious and non-obvious in assessing whether an invention was not before known. Deciding on patents was particularly difficult when it involved biological processes. Nevertheless, biological patents have a long history. In 1873, for example, the French biologist Louis Pasteur was awarded the first known patent for a microorganism, a method for making yeast free from organic germs of disease. Thus we have pasteurized milk, juice, and wine. The modern biotechnology industry was born a century later, when a Stanford attorney approached Stanley Cohen and Herbert Boyer and convinced them to file for a patent on the method they had discovered for manufacturing new genes using recombinant DNA. Many scientists, including Paul Berg, the discoverer of recombinant DNA, were horrified at the idea of patenting a biological process. But the royalties that flowed to the inventors and their universities quickly made biotech patents popular. Stanford, for example, made $225 million in 25 years by granting hundreds of biotech companies non-exclusive licenses to the Cohen-Boyer patents. Two major milestones occurred in 1980. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of a genetic engineer who had derived a strain of bacteria capable of eating crude oil, which made it useful in cleaning up oil spills. His application had been rejected by the patent office on the theory that you could not patent a living thing. But the Supreme Court ruled, in a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice Warren Burger, that a live human-made microorganism is patentable if it is a product of human ingenuity. Also that year, Congress passed the Bayh-Dole Act, which made it easier for universities to benefit from patents even if the research was funded by the government. Until then, universities often were required to assign the rights to their inventions to the federal agencies that had funded them. Some academics feel that the Bayh-Dole Act cheats the public out of the proceeds from inventions funded with taxpayer money and distorts the way universities work. Encouraged by a small number of patents that made huge sums, universities developed massive infrastructure to profit from their researchers, argues Michael Eisen, Dowden's colleague at Berkeley. He believes that the government should put all work funded by federal dollars into the public domain. We all would benefit, returning academic science to its roots in basic discovery-oriented research. We see with CRISPR the toxic effects of turning academic institutions into money-hungry hawkers of intellectual property. That's an appealing argument. But I believe that, on balance, American science has benefited from the current mix of federal funding and commercial incentives. To turn a basic scientific discovery into a tool or a drug can cost billions of dollars. Unless there is a way to recoup that, there won't be as much investment in research. The development of CRISPR and the therapies it led to are a good example. CRISPR patents. Doudna did not know much about patents. Little of her previous work had practical application. 
When she and Charpentier were finishing their June 2012 paper, she reached out to the woman at Berkeley in charge of intellectual property, who set her up with a lawyer. For research professors in the U.S., the patents to their inventions are usually assigned to the academic institution, in Doudna's case, Berkeley, with the inventors having a lot of say over how it will be licensed and taking a portion, in most universities about one-third, of the royalties. In Sweden, where Charpentier was then based, the patent goes directly to the inventor. So Doudna's application was filed jointly by Berkeley, Charpentier personally, and the University of Vienna, where Shalinsky was based. Shortly after 7 p.m. on May 25, 2012, just as they were finishing their paper for science, they filed their provisional patent application and used a credit card to pay the $155 fee for processing. It did not occur to them to spend a little extra to have the application expedited. The 168-page application, which included diagrams and experimental data, described CRISPR-Cas9 and made more than 124 claims for ways that the system could be used. All of the data in the application were from experiments done with bacteria. However, it mentioned delivery methods that could work in human cells, and it made the claim that the patent should cover the use of CRISPR as an editing tool in all forms of life. As I noted earlier, Jung and the Broad submitted their own patent application in December 2012, when his paper about editing in humans was accepted by science. It specifically described a process for using CRISPR in human cells. Unlike Berkeley, the Broad made use of a neat little provision in the patent process. It paid a small additional fee and agreed to a few conditions in order to expedite consideration under what was known as an accelerated examination request, or, more poetically, a petition to make special. Initially, the patent office did not grant Jung's application, asking for more information. Jung responded by supplying a written declaration. In it, he made an allegation that infuriated Doudna. He pointed out that Church had sent her a preprint of his paper, and he implied that she used his data in her patent application. I respectfully question the origin of the example, Jung said. In one of their legal filings, Jung and the Broad asserted, it was only after the church laboratory shared unpublished data that Dr. Doudna's laboratory reported they were able to adapt a CRISPR-Cas9 system for use in human cells. Doudna was outraged at Jung's declaration, because it implied that she had plagiarized Church's data. She called Church at his home on a Sunday afternoon, and he shared her anger at what his former student had alleged. I'm happy to go public and say you didn't improperly use my data, Church told her. She had been polite to include a sentence about him in her acknowledgments, and it was outrageous, he later told me, that Jung would turn that small act of collegiality against her. Marafini dropped. As Jung was waiting for a ruling on his patent applications, he and the bro did something unusual. They dropped the name of his collaborator Luciano Marafini from the main application. The somewhat mystifying tale is a sad example of the distorting effects that patent law can have on scientific collaboration. 
It's also a tale of competitiveness, perhaps even greed, overwhelming kindness, and collegiality. Marafini is the soft-spoken, Argentinian-born bacteriologist at Rockefeller University who collaborated with Jung beginning in early 2012 and was a co-author on his science paper. When Jung initially filed for his patents, Marafini was listed as one of the co-inventors. A year later, Marafini was called into the office of the president of Rockefeller and told, to his shock and profound sadness, that Jung and the Broad had decided to narrow some of the patent applications and focus one of them only on the process of making CRISPR-Cas9 work in human cells. Marafini did not contribute enough to that work to deserve being on the patent, the Broad unilaterally decided, so they were dropping him. Feng Zheng didn't even have the politeness to tell me directly, Marafini says, shaking his head, still looking shocked and sad after six years. I'm a reasonable guy. If they said my contribution was not worth an equal share, I would have accepted a smaller share. But they didn't even tell me. What particularly pains him is that he views the story of his work with Jung as an inspiring American tale. Two young rising stars who were immigrants, one from China and the other from Argentina, joining forces to show how CRISPR could be used in humans. When I ask Jung about this, he likewise speaks quietly and sorrowfully, as if he's the one who is hurt. I focused on Cas9 from the beginning, he insists, when I ask if Marafini should get some credit for getting him to concentrate on that enzyme. It may have been ungenerous to take Marafini off the patent, but in Jung's mind, it was not unwarranted. Therein lies one of the problems with patents. They prod people to be less generous in sharing credit. Conflict The Patent Office decided to grant Jung's patent application on April 15, 2014, even though Doudna's application was still being considered. I am using shorthand when I refer to the applications. When I talk about Doudna's, I am referring to the ones she did jointly with Charpentier, Berkeley, and the University of Vienna. Likewise, when I talk about Jung's applications, I am referring to the ones he did with the Broad, MIT, and Harvard. When she heard, she called Andy May, her business associate, who was driving. I remember pulling over in the car and taking the call and getting this blast, he says. How did this happen? she asked. How did we get beaten? She was livid, absolutely livid. Doudna's application was still languishing at the patent office. That raised a question. What happens if you apply for a patent, and before the decision gets made, another person is granted a similar patent? Under U.S. law, you have a year to request an interference hearing. So, in April 2015, Doudna filed a claim that Jung's patents should be disallowed because they interfered with the patent applications that she had previously submitted. Specifically, Doudna submitted a 114-page Suggestion of Interference, detailing why some of Jung's claims were not patentably distinct from her own pending claims. Even though her team's experiments had involved bacteria, she argued that their patent application specifically states that the system can be applied in all organisms and provides 
detailed descriptions of numerous steps that could be taken to apply the system to humans. Jung argued in his response declaration that Doudna's application did not, emphasis in the original, have the features required for Cas9 binding and DNA target site recognition in a human cell. Thus, the battle lines were drawn. Doudna and her colleagues had identified the essential components of CRISPR-Cas9 and engineered a technique to make it work using components from bacterial cells. Their contention was that it was then obvious how it would work in a human cell. Zhang and the Broad Institute countered that it was not obvious that the system would work in humans. It required another inventive step to make it work, and Zhang had beaten Doudna to it. In order to resolve this issue, the patent examiners in December 2015 launched an interference proceeding to be decided by a panel of three patent judges. When Doudna's lawyers asserted it was obvious that a system that worked in bacteria would also work in humans, they were using a term of art. In patent law, the term obvious refers to a specific legal concept. Courts have declared that the criterion for determination of obviousness is whether the prior art would have suggested to a person of ordinary skill in the art that this process would have a reasonable likelihood of success. In other words, you don't deserve a new patent if you merely modified a prior invention in a way that was so obvious that a person with ordinary skill in the field could have done the same with a reasonable likelihood of success. Unfortunately, phrases such as person of ordinary skill and reasonable likelihood of success are fuzzy when applied to biology, where experiments are less predictable than in other forms of engineering. Unexpected things happen when you start fiddling with the innards of living cells. The Trial It took a full year for all the briefs, declarations, and motions to be filed, after which a hearing was held in December 2016 before a three-judge panel at the Patent and Trademark Office in Alexandria, Virginia. With its blonde wood dais and simple tables, the hearing room looks like a sleepy county traffic court. But on the day of the trial, a hundred journalists, lawyers, investors, and biotech fans, most of them bespectacled and looking a bit nerdy, began lining up at 5.45 a.m. to get seats. Jung's lawyer opened the hearing by stating that the key issue was whether the use of CRISPR in eukaryotic cells was obvious after the Doudna-Charpentier 2012 article. To make the case that it was not, he put up a series of posters with statements made earlier by Doudna and her team. The first was from an interview Doudna gave to a Berkeley chemistry department magazine. Our 2012 paper was a big success, but there was a problem. We weren't sure if CRISPR-Cas9 would work in plant and animal cells. Jung's lawyer then put up a quote that was not merely an offhand comment, but a statement that Doudna and Martin Yenick made in the eLife paper that they had rushed into publication in January 2013. Their earlier paper had suggested the exciting possibility that the CRISPR system could be used for editing human genes, they wrote, but then they added, however, it was not known whether such a bacterial system would function in eukaryotic cells. As Jung's lawyer told the court, these comments at the time belie this idea that this was all obvious.
Doudna's lawyers rebutted that her comments were simply the mark of a careful scientist. This did not impress the lead judge, Deborah Katz. Are there any statements, she asked Doudna's lawyer, in which anybody said they did believe it would work? The best the lawyer could do was point to Doudna's statement that it was a real possibility. Fearing that he was playing a losing hand, Doudna's lawyer shifted the argument. Five labs had made the system work in eukaryotic cells within six months of the publication of the Doudna Charpentier discovery, he said, which was an indication of how obvious such a step was. He displayed a chart showing how they all used well-known methods. There's no special sauce here, he told the judge. These labs would not have embarked on this quest unless they had a reasonable expectation of success. The three-judge panel ended up siding with Jung and the Broad. Broad has persuaded us that the parties claim patentably distinct subject matter, the judges declared in February 2017. The evidence shows that the invention of such systems in eukaryotic cells would not have been obvious. Doubtness side appealed to the federal courts, beginning a process that took another 19 months. In September 2018, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit upheld the ruling of the patent board. Jung was entitled to his patent. It did not interfere with Doudna and Charpentier's application. But as happens with many complex intellectual property cases, these rulings did not end the case or give Jung a total victory. Because there was no interference between the two sets of applications, they could be considered separately, which meant that it was still possible that the Doudna Charpentier application would be granted as well. Patent Priority Dispute, 2020. That is what happened. In the final two sentences of its 2018 decision affirming Jung's patent, the U.S. Court of Appeals had emphasized a significant point. This case is about the scope of two sets of applied-for claims and whether those claims are patentably distinct, the judge wrote. It is not a ruling on the validity of either set of claims. In other words, there was no interference between the patents granted to Jung and the pending ones that had been applied for by Doudna and Charpentier. They could be considered as two distinct inventions, and it was possible that both could deserve patents, or that the Doudna-Charpentier ones would take priority. Of course, such a result would be messy and somewhat paradoxical. If both sets of patents got granted and then seemed to overlap, that would fly in the face of the decision that there was no interference between them. But sometimes life, and in particular life inside of cells and courtrooms, can be paradoxical. In early 2019, the U.S. Patent Office granted 15 patents based on the applications that Doudna and Charpentier had filed in 2012. By then, Doudna had hired a new lead attorney, Eldora Ellison, who had blazed an educational path that was tailor-made for the age of biotech. She earned her undergraduate degree at Haverford in biology, then a doctorate at Cornell in biochemistry and cell biology, and finally a law degree at Georgetown. I often suggest to my students that they consider studying both biology and business, as Rachel Horwitz did, or biology and law, as Ellison did. 
When she analyzed the case for me over breakfast, Allison was able to explain the nuances of both the biology and the law, and she readily cited from memory arcane footnotes in various scientific articles and court decisions. I came to the conclusion that Ellison would be great on the Supreme Court, which nowadays could use at least one justice who understands biology and technology. Ellison was able to prod the patent office in June 2019 to launch a new case. Unlike the first case, which looked only at whether Jung's patents interfered with the ones that Doudna had applied for, this new case would involve adjudicating the fundamental issue, which side had made the key discoveries first. This new priority dispute would attempt to pinpoint, using notebooks and other evidence, precisely when each applicant had invented CRISPR-Cas9 as an editing tool. In a May 2020 hearing, done by phone because of the coronavirus closures, Jung's lawyer argued that the issue had already been decided. It was not obvious that the CRISPR-Cas9 system discovered by Doudna and Charpentier in 2012 would work in human cells, and therefore, Jung was entitled to a patent for being the first to show how it would. Ellison responded that the legal issues in the new case were not the same. The patent that was granted to Doudna and Charpentier was for the use of CRISPR-Cas9 in all organisms, from bacteria to humans. The question, she said, was whether their patent application from 2012 contained enough evidence to show they had discovered this. She contended that even though their experimental data came from using bacterial components in a test tube, their patent application, when considered in its entirety, described how to use the system in any organism. By late 2020, the case was still dragging along. In Europe, there was initially a similar situation. Doudna and Charpentier were granted a patent, and then Jung was also given one. But at that point, Jung's dispute with Marafini popped up again. After Jung's applications were revised and Marafini's name dropped, the European Patent Court ruled that Jung could not use the date of his original application as his priority date. As a result, other patent applications were deemed to have an earlier priority date, and the court revoked Jung's patent. Fung's European patent was nullified because of the way he took me off, Marafini says. By 2020, Doudna and Charpentier had been awarded the major patents also in Britain, China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and Mexico. Were all of these patent battles worth it? Would Doudna and Jung have been better off coming to a deal rather than battling in court? In retrospect, Doudna's business partner Andy May thinks so. We would have saved a lot of time and money around all of the legal arguments if we had managed to come together, he says. To an unnecessary extent, the prolonged fight was driven by emotions and resentments. Instead, Doudna and Jung could have followed the example of Jack Kilby of Texas Instruments and Robert Noyce of Intel, who, after five years of wrangling, agreed to share the patent rights for the microchip by cross-licensing their intellectual property to each other and splitting the royalties, which helped the microchip business grow exponentially and define a new age of technology. Unlike the CRISPR contestants, Noyce and Kilby obeyed an all-important business maxim. Don't fight over divvying up the proceeds, 
until you finish robbing the stagecoach. Part 4. CRISPR IN ACTION If ever man fell ill, there was no defense, no healing food, no ointment, nor any drink, but for lack of medicine they wasted away until I showed them how to mix soothing remedies. Prometheus in Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound Chapter 32 Therapies Sickle Cell In July 2019, a doctor at a Nashville hospital plunged the needle of a large syringe into the arm of a 34-year-old African-American woman from a small town in central Mississippi and infused her with stem cells that had been extracted from her blood and edited using CRISPR-Cas9. They were now being reinserted in an attempt to cure her of the sickle cell disease that had plagued her with debilitating pain since she was a baby. Thus did Victoria Gray, a mother of four children, become the first person in the United States to be treated with a CRISPR gene-editing tool. The clinical trial was led by CRISPR Therapeutics, the company formed by Emmanuel Charpentier. When Gray was injected, her heart rate shot up, and for a while she had trouble breathing. There was a little scary, tough moment for me, she told NPR reporter Rob Stein, who was allowed to follow her treatment. After that, I cried but it was happy tears. Much of the attention paid to CRISPR these days involves its potential to make inheritable germline edits in humans that will be passed along to all the cells of all of our future descendants and have the potential to alter our species. These edits are done in reproductive cells or early-stage embryos. This is what occurred with the CRISPR baby twins in China in 2018, and it is the controversial topic that I will discuss later in this book. But in this chapter, I'm going to focus on what will be, at least for now, the most common and welcome uses of CRISPR. Cases like that of Victoria Gray, in which CRISPR is used to edit some, but not all, of the body, somatic, cells of a patient, and make changes that will not be inherited. This can be done by taking the cells out of the patients, editing them, and returning them ex vivo, or by delivering the CRISPR editing tool into cells inside of the patient, in vivo. Sickle cell anemia is one of the best candidates for ex vivo gene editing because it involves blood cells that can be easily extracted and returned. The disease is caused by a mutation in a single letter out of more than 3 billion base pairs of a person's DNA, which causes a kink in the hemoglobin protein. A normal version of hemoglobin protein forms round and smooth blood cells, able to move easily through our vessels and carry oxygen from our lungs to the rest of our body. But the kinked hemoglobin protein forms long fibers that contort the red blood cells, which causes them to clump together and crumple into the shape of a sickle. Oxygen does not get to tissues and organs, causing severe pain, and, in most cases, death by age 50. Sickle cell disease afflicts more than 4 million people worldwide, about 80% of them in sub-Saharan Africa, and about 90,000 people in the U.S., mainly African Americans. 
the simplicity of the genetic glitch and the severity of the syndrome makes it a perfect candidate for gene editing. In the case of Victoria Gray, doctors extracted stem cells from her own blood and edited them using CRISPR to activate a gene that produces a type of blood cell that is normally made only during the fetal stage of life. That fetal stage hemoglobin is healthy, so if the genetic modification works, patients can start producing their own good blood. A few months after she was injected with her edited cells, Gray drove up to the Nashville hospital to see if the therapy was working. She was optimistic. Ever since she got the edited cells, she hadn't needed to get donor transfusions or had any attacks of pain. A nurse inserted a needle and drew multiple tubes of blood. After a nervous wait, her doctor came in to give her the news. I am super excited about your results today, he said. There are signs that you are starting to make fetal hemoglobin, which is very exciting for us. About half of her blood was now fetal hemoglobin with healthy cells. In June 2020, Gray got some even more exciting news. The treatment seemed to be lasting. After nine months, she still had not suffered any sickle cell pain attacks, nor did she need any further blood transfusions. Tests showed that 81% of her bone marrow cells were producing the good fetal hemoglobin, meaning that the gene edits were sustained. High school graduations, college graduations, weddings, grandkids. I thought I wouldn't see none of that, she said after getting the news. Now I'll be there to help my daughters pick out their wedding dresses. It was an amazing milestone. CRISPR had apparently cured a genetic disease in humans. In Berlin, Charpentier listened to a recording of Gray's emotional NPR interview. It was pretty amazing to realize as I heard her, she says, that the little baby I helped to create, CRISPR editing, means that she will no longer suffer. Affordability Applications of CRISPR such as this are likely to be lifesavers. They are also sure to be expensive. In fact, the treatment of a single patient could cost $1 million or more, at least initially. So the prospect of CRISPR doing great good is matched by its potential to bankrupt the healthcare system. Doudna began to focus on this problem after a discussion that she had with a group of U.S. senators in December 2018. The meeting at the Capitol was held a few weeks after the announcement that twin CRISPR babies had been born in China with inheritable edits, and Doudna expected it to focus on that headline-making news. At first, it did. But to her surprise, the discussion quickly shifted from the perils of inheritable gene editing to the promise of using gene editing to treat diseases. Doudna told the senators that CRISPR was on the verge of creating a cure for sickle cell disease, which got them to perk up, but they immediately peppered her with questions about the cost. We have 100,000 people in the U.S. affected by sickle cell, one senator pointed out. How are we going to afford that if it's $1 million per patient? That just breaks the bank. Doudna decided that making sickle cell treatments affordable 
should become a mission of her innovative genomics institute. The Senate hearing was, for me, a watershed moment, she says. I'd been thinking a lot about costs before that, but not in a focused way. When she arrived back at Berkeley, she convened a series of meetings of her team to discuss how to make wide access to sickle cell treatments a new core part of their mission. The public-private partnership that led to the availability of the polio vaccine became an inspiration. She reached out to the Gates Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, which announced a partnership for a Cure Sickle Cell initiative funded with $200 million. The primary scientific goal of the initiative is to find a method to edit the sickle cell mutation inside of a patient without needing to extract bone marrow. One possibility is to inject into the patient's blood a gene-editing molecule with an address label that directs it right to the cells in the bone marrow. The difficult part will be to find the right delivery mechanism, such as a virus-like particle that won't trigger the patient's immune system. If the initiative is successful, it will not only cure a lot of people of a dreadful disease, it will advance the cause of health justice. Most sickle cell patients in the world are Africans or African-Americans. These are populations that have been historically underserved by the medical community. Even though the genetic cause of sickle cell disease has been understood for longer than any similar disorder, new treatments have lagged behind. For example, the fight against cystic fibrosis, which affects primarily white Americans and Europeans, has received eight times more funding from government, charities, and foundations 